Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this IFG event on a potential ministerial reshuffle later in the spring. My name is Tim Durrant. I'm an associate director on our ministers programme. Thank you very much for joining us. When Boris Johnson set up his first cabinet back in 2019, he chose ministers who would help him get Brexit done. Uh, since then, he had a reshuffle in February last year, just before the pandemic hit, and we saw one high profile departure at that point. There's been relatively little change since then. Now, over a year into the pandemic, there are rumours of a reshuffle later this spring or perhaps later in the year. Here at the IFG, we have no particular insights into when it might happen, but we thought it'd be interesting to talk about what we might expect. Are there particular posts that might change hands? Will the PM be thinking, what will the PM be thinking about as he's making his decisions? And what is it like being in government on reshuffle day? To discuss all this and more, we have a fantastic panel. Uh, I'm joined today by Katie Balls, who is the Deputy Political Editor at The Spectator and a regular columnist in The Eye newspaper and The Guardian. Ben Riley-Smith, who is Political Editor at The Telegraph and who, before doing that role, was in Washington covering the Trump presidency. Salma Shah, who is a partner and senior advisor at Portland, but was also special advisor to Sajid Javid, working with him in the culture, business and housing departments and, of course, the Home Office. And last but not least, Lord Young of Cookham, who was Transport Secretary in John Major's government and leader of the Commons and Chief Whip during the 2010-2015 coalition. He was created a life peer in 2015 and served as a government whip in the House of Lords from 2016 to 2019. Before we start with the discussion, a couple of quick housekeeping points from me. Uh, please do send in your questions. There's already a few coming through, but please add to them. There's a Q&A panel on the right of your screen. We'll get to that as many of them as possible throughout the conversation. If you see one that you'd particularly like answered, there's an, a like function on there. So please uh, hit that so we can see which are most popular. My colleague Jack is live tweeting this discussion from our IFG events account using the hashtag IFG reshuffle. So please feel free to join that conversation if you would like. And a video and sound recording of the event will be available on our website uh, within about 24 hours. So if you want to catch up on any of it again, you can do so there. With that, let's get started. So, Lord Young, if I could start with you, can you tell us what is it like being reshuffled and as Chief Whip being involved in running a reshuffle? Well, Tim, I've been on both ends of a reshuffle. I've been out of government about six or seven times. And then as Chief Whip, I've been on the giving end. And it's as if the Prime Minister has written a play with a storyline and a plot. But he's the only chap who's got the script. So when the other actors come onto the stage, it's only at that point they discover what their roles are. And as uh, Chief Whip was just hoping that uh, it's going to go to plan, but it doesn't always do so. Some people refuse the jobs they've been uh, offered. But also as Chief Whip, you have to deal with the, the aftershock uh, the disappointed um, and uh, minor things like finding rooms for cabinet ministers who are no longer cabinet ministers and what a room in the House of Commons. So there's a whole range of um, responsibilities that uh, devolve onto the chief whip as well as what happens before, which is giving the prime minister some advice on who might be moved and who should be promoted. Because, I mean, on that, that last point, you know, presumably the prime minister doesn't have the time to get a to grips with how all of his ministers are doing. He doesn't He doesn't know how everyone's performing, what their strengths are. Um, he'll have a shrewd idea about the people around his cabinet. But what he won't know is how well 
um, particularly junior ministers, are performing in the House of Commons uh, in select committees and taking bills through the House. And because there's a whip on the bench the whole of the time, and there's a whip on every public bill committee, the whip's office have a very good idea of which ministers are performing well, command confidence in the House, are on top of their brief, and which ones aren't doing quite so well but also which uh, backbenchers are doing well in the chamber, in select committee. And so the, the chief whip can certainly be highly influential in the more junior posts, uh, perhaps have a, a, a nudge uh, on some of the more senior ones and can give some helpful input to the prime minister. Brilliant. Uh, well, plenty more that we can unpack there. I'm going to go around the rest of the panel, but let's um, come to some of those themes again. Salma, um, you were a special advisor to Sajid Javid in four of his cabinet posts. Um, what is it like waiting, uh, in, in Lord Young's words, of finding out what role your minister is going to take on when he comes onto the stage? How, how does it feel behind the scenes while you're waiting to find out what your next job is? Well, firstly, I think it's important to note that actually it's always a bit of a surprise when it happens in the day. So you can sort of get a sense of that it might be in this week and then all of a sudden, you know, you get your news flash that, you know, a reshuffle is underway. And so, I mean, mostly in my case, you sort of rush to the office and it's a bit like school sports day, which is you're, you're at school, but you're not quite doing the same things that you normally do at school. Um, and what I find interesting is that I always felt, and I, I know a lot of my special advisor colleagues also felt this, is that you sort of knew what was going to happen. You know, this is um, a sort of a long, a long leaded thing where if you're going to be out, there are lots of noises about the fact that you're going to be out and you can pick that up internally and from the things that you read. And if you're going up or if you're staying put, you know, you get a sense of that. What's most interesting um, is that you're glued to the screen and sort of watching everyone walk up and down Downing Street just as much as anyone else. So, you know, even on the inside of government, you really want to know what's happening and what that then means widely for government, what that means for your minister in context and, you know, who else you might get, certainly if you work for a secretary of state, who else you might get in your department and how are those dynamics going to work. So there's a lot going on in your head. And I think it's one of the few occasions in Parliament or in any uh, Western liberal politics, really, where the prime minister really is in charge of this and it's held quite closely and quite tightly. And no matter how many predictions you make, you'll probably always be off um, on it. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. And, and is, a, is a good segue into my next question. So, Katie, the last reshuffle, the big one we had in February last year, uh, there was a prediction or something happened that nobody would have predicted, perhaps, which was Sajid Javid resigning um, as, as Chancellor. Are, do you think, what do you think Boris Johnson will have taken away from the last reshuffle? Will there be things that he, he learned then that he will, will affect how he approaches the next one? Uh, I think he will have learned that things can move quickly. I mean, we also know that that last reshuffle, he had almost different uh, personnel around him in number 10. It was very much a vote leave reshuffle. You had Dominic Cummings, you had Lee Kane, and then Director of Communications. So I think that uh, the next reshuffle, whether that is spring, summer, some even think perhaps next year, because it's so bruising. I think the Prime Minister is hugely uh, keen to, you know, keep... keep uh, uh, causing problems in that sense. Um, I think we'll have a different tone to it. But I think on that day, I remember the day before, you had Paul Harrison, who worked under Theresa May, writing a comment piece, I think, for The Guardian, warning that you know even the best uh, planned reshuffles can change very quickly. And we got to run like, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, 
you won't be able to move one person now and you know things can go a little bit wrong and then the next day uh you obviously have your sackings in the morning and Sadiq and, and you have a situation where you have your sackings in the morning then you have the figures go in and I remember when the chancellor went in there was just this long wait and everyone started thinking well shouldn't he be out by now shouldn't he be out a few messages and it's like oh no something's taking a while obviously it wasn't really a promotion because he was the chancellor and then before you know as you go down uh, you know, there's clearly a problem there with Sergeant Jevons um, and I think that from that point on I think it got to like around an hour um, and you realize something really has gone quite wrong and then from in the room because clearly it's a very small audience within that room you start to hear a few whispers from it and there had been reports in advance about how um, Sergio Jevons AIDS could be a, a problem from the number 10 perspective and you begin to uh, see it together and then obviously you hear the news that he uh, has left government but very quickly Rishi Sunak comes in as the Chancellor so I think it showed you how quickly uh, obviously you can respond to these things um, I think ultimately number 10 would have known there was a bit of a risk in in what the the offer they presented to their chancellor in the sense of get rid of your entire team perhaps by one person but I also think that probably perhaps the underappreciated element of this was you had a situation where because uh, the chancellor had moved it messed up the entire reshuffle so after that, nothing was in place. And actually, to this day, we can say many reasons the Tory party has been uh, quite unhappy in recent months, obviously improved by the vaccination programme. But I think one of the underappreciated ones is that reshuffle, because everything moved a bit. And particularly, I think, when you got to the junior ministerial ranks, and then they had to keep making decisions quickly that weren't exactly their plan A. And I think it did add to this sense of it, because you had people being moved into positions without properly thinking about it, because you were almost caught on the hop um, because of that one move. So I think it was a lesson in, in how quickly things can change. And actually, the ramifications are much more wide than simply the great offices of state when that happens. Absolutely. And, and that point on, on party management is really important and hopefully we can unpack that a little bit more later. But it's a reshuffle isn't just about building a good team for government, is it? It's about building support in the political, in the parliamentary party, bringing in the new generations of MPs and thinking through how the PM builds his alliances there. So be an interesting question for him, I think, coming up. And um, so let's turn to an expected reshuffle, as Katie says, you know, maybe it may be soon, it may not be. But Ben, have, you know, are there particular posts that people should be watching or indeed particular individuals that um, are sort of, you know, being talked about? Well, that's the big question everybody always wants to know. And of course, even the ministers themselves don't know this. And I imagine the prime minister might not even know until uh, the very moment he announces it. I suppose the first question is when something might happen. Um, and putting in a few calls before this event, I was trying to get a sense of whether we think one is imminent or not. I may be entirely wrong, but it doesn't sound like one is expected within weeks. Clearly, you've got the May 6 local elections, mm -hmm. and you'd be surprised if anything changes before then because we're in this active campaigning mode. And then looking forward, we've got the G7 gathering at the beginning of June, so that's not another big moment. So do you want to have big changes before then? Um, I think the wider... And you can see the argument for why they would want to have a reshuffle at some point because... When you're elected, you have this big manifesto of change you want to bring to government. And then for the last year plus, they have been unable to do almost any of that and have been focused solely on tackling the pandemic for the most part. Um, you could imagine a point, possibly in the summer, when we're through the worst of it, the majority of the population is vaccinated. We're shifting into this other scenario of uh, regular waves of jabs and 
um, more medium-term measures to keep cases down. But when you can begin to pivot a bit more and say, okay, some of those big priorities we've got, tackling climate change, the levelling up agenda, um, making sure those red wall seats, the promises that were made to them are kept. Um, so a lot about the personnel depends on what type of reshuffle you want it to be. Um, I think it's probably easier to pick ministers who might be on the way up than to pick those in the cabinet who might be on the way down. I mean, if you had to place bets, I suppose, Nadim Zaharway, who has been um, the face of the vaccine rollout, has been such a huge success and probably is a big part on that poll uplift that we've seen from the Tories in the last couple of months. Who would be one you, you would guess? Um, it was interesting in a briefing um, a couple of weeks ago, Allegra Stratton, the uh, Prime Minister's press secretary, said publicly on the record that they wanted to get a, a high proportion of women into the cabinet. Um, so that's clearly going to be uh, part of the reshuffle whenever it comes. Um, uh, Victoria Atkins is one who's often tipped, who's a uh, minister in the Home Office and um, is very articulate and impressive. Um, and then in terms of who comes down, uh, I don't want to damn any minister, cabinet ministerial careers. I think it's no secret that when you look at um, polls of Tory party members, it's Gavin Williamson who has clearly the lowest rating, uh, the school closures and all the um, occasional about turns about opening and closing um, are affected by a vast proportion of the country. And he is the public face of that. Um, so there is a challenge there politically. Um, but then, you know, he did help Boris Johnson become prime minister because he was chief whip um, at various points, understands the party very well and was there with um, Boris uh, during that leadership, um, uh, successful leadership push. So um, maybe that is a reason why he wouldn't be demoted. Um, yeah, but one of the fun for us journalists, especially when you know it's coming, is calling around as much as possible and trying to work out. And the truth is, from past reshuffles I've taken, often people honestly don't know what is going to happen and who is going to be up and down. And you will talk to ministers who say, I don't know if I'll be in a job by the end of the week. And occasionally you get incoming calls from people who are kind of suggesting to you that you wouldn't mind their name being in the speculation for particular posts. Um, but I think this kind of debate will play out even up to the night before. And I'm sure much of the stuff written will prove to be wrong. Absolutely. Um, Lord Jen, on, on, on that point about sort of, you know, ministers kind of angling for positions and also not knowing what to expect, how did that play out when you were Chief Whip? Did, did people come to you and say, oh, well, I'd be quite interested in such and such a role? Could you pass that on? Or how does that work? Um, yes, people uh, regularly came into the office when I was Chief Whip um, asking to have their temperature taken, basically. Um, how are they doing? Uh, why weren't they promoted in the last uh, reshuffle? Was there anything they was doing that was um, wrong? And um, as far as I was concerned, whether they came to see me or not made no difference as to whether or not I would recommend them for um, a promotion. There were other sort of criteria. Mm -hmm. And in fact, people could oversell themselves to the chief whip by coming in so often that actually um, you were slightly less in favour of them than before. But this parliament is very different from the one which I started in that there are many more ambitious MPs. When I first became an MP, roughly half the parliamentary party did not want to become ministers. They were far too busy doing outside things, and this was not part of their uh, sort of job specification. So managing the party, managing expectations is actually much more difficult than it was. Mm -hmm. And that's why after the reshuffle, the whip's office have quite a difficult job. Firstly, managing the people who have been dismissed. 
and secondly, managing the people who weren't promoted. Yeah. So um, I think anyone running HR would tell you this is no way to run an organization, sacking people at a day's notice, and quite often because they've done nothing wrong, just because the prime minister wants a slightly different team. So uh, it, it is quite a difficult man management job, and I think we're getting better at it, but you can't lessen the shock. One thing I did, i just end on this. The first reshuffle, people went in to see the Prime Minister and they didn't know if they're going to be promoted or sacked. And for some, it was devastating and there were tears. The second reshuffle, um, I rang people up before they were about to be sacked and said, the Prime Minister's making some changes. He's had to make some very difficult decisions. And then colleagues were smart enough to crack the code. And I did some sort of market research afterwards, <clears throat> and they all said it was much better <clears throat> knowing in advance that they were going to go than going in a, and being confronted with a shock. And of course, it's much easier for the prime minister managing people who, when they came in, knew what their fate was, rather than having to cope with people who thought they were going to become home secretary or whatever, and found that they were out on their ear. Yeah, absolutely. So a general question then for, for the panel, and, and this is coming up in the questions as well from the audience. Do people think now or, or in the next few months, whenever whenever this reshuffle takes place, is it a time for big change or is it a time for sort of incremental? So at the IFG generally, we say, you know, there's too much turnover in ministerial ranks. It, people need a good while in their job to get used to how things work, to understand the portfolio. And too much change is, is damaging for government. Um, there hasn't been a lot of change over the last year because everyone's been focusing on the pandemic. Um, and actually, as, as, as Ben mentioned, you know, there are a number of ministers who have attracted quite a lot of criticism, either for sort of policy failings in their department or certain individuals as well for, for some things that have happened or that they've done. So is now a moment for a lot of change? What do people think? I think it's more down to um, what is the direction that the government wants to take? So, you know, you can't have a reshuffle in a vacuum. And part of the issue is that we actually need to decide what is it that, um, well, the government needs to decide what is it that they want to achieve post-pandemic. So part of that is um, policy-orientated, part of that is narrative-orientated. And then from what you have, what, you know, in terms of skill set and the people that you have, who best represents that? Now, the reality is, that can be your starting point, but political reality and relationships quite often get in the way. So you can't just have a clean sort of move, you know, shuffle around in the cabinet. And it's something interesting that Lord Young said is that, you know, if this was an HR process in a company, we just wouldn't pass muster. And uh, I'd love to see at some point, you know, you know, whether there's a cabinet minister who tries to challenge on some unfair dismissal grounds. I'm sure there's no legislation that actually permits it. But, you know, if you're moved on, you might have done a really good job as a junior minister, but, you know, it might be that they need to make space for somebody else and somebody younger. But those are the things that drive a reshuffle. But the, the starting point has to be kind of what is the what is the direction of government? And I think even at this point in the pandemic, it's strangely too soon to sort of determine what that's going to look like, because we don't know how much the economy is going to contract. Uh, we don't know really what's going to happen. We've only had this one phase of vaccine success. You know, the autumn is going to see the second, uh, the boosters. And we also don't know what's going to happen internationally because we have no control over that. Um, so there's just a lot of uncertainty, which would suggest that it should be a smaller reshuffle. 
Yeah, I think my 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 gut instinct would it it would be small. I mean, we don't know if it's coming and when it's coming, but you know, one reason you could have a big reshuffle is if politically you need to communicate to the voters that you're going to be in a different place because things are going badly. But fundamentally, the direction of the polls for the Tories has been up for the last four months, and probably because of the vaccine rollout success, they're more being seen to have done a good job now than possibly six nine months ago. Um, and also, there's, I suppose, the reason for, you know, that you'd want a larger reshuffle is if you do feel there is, you know, somebody is really dragging you down politically in the cabinet or has totally botched the policy area or that there are people on the rungs below that are um, got their sharp elbows out and really want to get in. Um, but, yeah, my instinct would it would be smaller rather than bigger because you can't it's not going to be a point in the next six months and you can say, OK, COVID pandemic's over now. We can park that and focus on everything else because that's just not how the pandemic is, is going to play out. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the Prime Minister is in a hurry to have a reshuffle because I think both uh, Boris Johnson and his chief whip are acutely aware of what happens when you upset people in a reshuffle and they've been living with some of that um, in the past you know, several months now. I think that if you're looking at what the next reshuffle is going to be, well, Ahead of the next election, how many reshuffles does Boris Johnson have in him? I think potentially two. I think the general sense is if you were to do one in the spring or summer, that's almost a reform reshuffle. Mm -hmm. uh, a problem that lots of Secretary of State's report is if you have this idea of a reshuffle hanging above your head, it's much harder to affect change in your department. Um, they will complain that civil servants are often uh, perhaps uh, less uh, committed um, to everything that Secretary of State says if perhaps you're on the bottom of the con home poll and everyone thinks you're going to be moved at the first opportunity anyway. So I think they're probably, whether or not Boris Johnson plans to have one soon, I think there is an argument at some point, either what Boris Johnson did at one cabinet saying, oh, well, I think it was Therese Coffey who asked him and just said to him straight, I keep reading you're going to have this reshuffle. Um, is that true, Prime Minister? And he said, no, you're wonderful. You're all staying put. Um, so, so I think either saying there's not going to be a reshuffle or actually having this and getting the people in for the reform you want to do in this kind of middle of, of the term. And then I think there's always space for that reshuffle, which is more your facelift ahead of the new election, uh, ahead of the next election where you would want to promote your younger talent to show this is a fresh government, even though you're going for a fifth term. And therefore, you almost want a reshuffle before that one, um, not just a reform, but to make sure the people you want to promote are moving into the positions where they will be able to be in that uh, pre-election reshuffle. So I think those are the things they are going to have to bear in mind, even if it is going to um, cause them a few problems to go through the motions. Could I just add a, <clears throat> add a footnote to what uh, the rest of the panel have said? When, when, when Boris Johnson formed his first um, administration, by and large, he got rid of the Remainers. And I think the next reshuffle is a real opportunity to bring the party together and bring back some of the very able ministers who left government a few months ago, uh, but who now could add value. I think the second thing he, he shouldn't do is move people too quickly. We've had 10 housing ministers since 2010. We've had seven Lord Chancellors. We've had seven at the DWP. We've only had three health secretaries. So I think we need to, as, as has already been said, to give some ministers an opportunity to get on top of their portfolios. From, from a, a scheming Chief Whip's point of view, it's quite helpful for the parliamentary party to think there is about to be a reshuffle because then people are tremendously supportive. They vote with the government. They wouldn't dream of upsetting the prime minister. So the threat of a reshuffle 
<laughs> although very destabilizing, as uh, um, Katie has just said, is actually, in terms of party management, quite a good weapon. That, that's really, really helpful. So, so on on that point about turnover, uh, there's a few comments that Alistair Burt in the in the Q and A has made the point that actually some ministers do benefit from being shuffle, having numerous jobs because they pick up different skill sets there. So there is a, a sort of a benefit to to moving people just as much as there is a benefit to um, to keeping people in place. But on this party management point, I think this is really interesting because we have seen, you know, you think government has an 80 seat majority, uh, the the opposition are, you know, struggling to make headway. Ben said, you know, the polls are, are all in the government's favour at the moment. At the same time, he the Prime Minister has had problems with his backbenchers. You know, there have been U-turns forced because of conservative backbench pressure rather than because of the opposition and um you know and over things like free school meals and huawei and um just general sort of discontent as well about the scope of the covid regulations and the speed of the the sort of reopening is is that going to go away is 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 he going to be able to manage that side of things and and is the only sort of um carrot and stick he has the threat of a reshuffle or are there other ways to to approach it can I jump in that? I was actually talking to a former, it's really interesting, the whole party discipline point and why, despite having this 80 or working majority, you're still facing these rebellions that come close to causing real issues. Uh, I think one point is I wouldn't underestimate just how damaging the Brexit referendum was, where you literally had a party who turned its guns on itself and had this all out all out battle. Um, but I was talking to a former cabinet minister now on the backbenches who made the point that we're on our third iteration of Tory prime ministers in a row. And each time, you know, under a usual, let's say the new, new Labour government, you know, there was a ladder, there was a structure, you knew you could work your way up and eventually be rewarded with a cabinet post. We've had three different PMs churning it over. So you have a huge number of people who got to the cabinet, then got booted out and now on the backbenches and thinking, well, what on earth do I do? This person was in, I think, their 40s. They said, well, hang on, I still believe my political career is, is, I've got decades to come. So what am I going to do? I'm going to start champion, championing some causes. So you do have this strange situation where there must be dozens of former Tory cabinet ministers who are on the back bench right now. Um, and all of them are independent minded and don't think they're on the way out, but still think they have something to contribute. So that makes the whole party management thing much more complicated, I think. I think there's another element to party management that is difficult and it goes back to your point Ben about the churn over you know three election campaigns and three prime ministers and that is that um, you don't have any older wiser cooler heads in sort of the middle rank of the parliamentary party you have all these um, as Keith Simpson might have called them thrusting young Turks ready to sort of go up and make their case and go and try and have a quiet ear, a chat in the chief whip's ear and what that means is that there is no sort of sense of procedure and protocol anymore. So, you know, whereas you would expect, OK, the first rung of the ladder is going into the whip's office and then it may be a junior ministerial post or PPS junior ministerial post and then perhaps going into a department. So you get to see, you know, as you know, Alistair said earlier, you know, picking up different skill sets. So, you know, what happens in Parliament, what happens in a department before you get up and actually are given a chunky brief to deal with. And a lot of that has gone out of the water because people also, in part because they have their own platform and they don't need to rely on the party as much anymore. They can just tweet stuff and get lots of sort of encouragement, think that they can leapfrog slightly. And, you know, it might be it might be slightly indelicate of me to say this, but I do recall, you know, 
there was a lot of animosity towards Sajid's appointment, his initial appointment to the cabinet way back in 2014, uh, where he was appointed culture secretary. And that was largely because a lot of people in the uh, sort of middle ranks of parliament who'd been there for some time but hadn't quite achieved cabinet status um, didn't like the fact that they felt that he was jumping the gun a little bit and that it was done um, because it was just about loyalty to George Osborne. And I think there are a lot of sort of personal um, animosities to manage, but I think it's that much worse when you have a completely, essentially new uh, parliamentary party that have no experience. I also think when it comes to, I suppose, party management, clearly not everyone can be given a job. Um, so, so you're going to upset some people along the way. Um, but I think one thing I think David Cameron was quite good at was actually uh, it might not be a junior ministerial role, might not even be a glorified bag carrier in terms of a PBS, but uh, there are lots of projects you can give people, there are lots of reviews, and I think that's something the government was, this government uh, has been quite slow to get to grips with. I think there are more ways to make people feel involved um, than they necessarily uh, take part in. But I do think on policy management, one of the problems that the government is going to have is that you mentioned earlier the fact that we have a spokesperson talking about promoting women. Now, that obviously gets very good headlines. Everyone's, yes, we should promote women, but a lot of male MPs feel that the last reshuffle was all about promoting women. Now, <laughs> Wrongly or fairly, that is their general sense. And I think that uh, ultimately that does create a problem um, because there are so many, I think, uh, if you think about those intakes, really think it's their time. You think that they, they were promised something the last time around, but they were told not this reshuffle because we're focusing on you know, these various kind of themes for our, our government. But next time around, that when they hear things about how it's going to be, uh, you know, a, a feminist reshuffle, I do think it makes them quite worried about their own career. And I'm not sure how you get around that. Yeah. And, and are there, you know, there are, there are lots of interest groups that the, the, the Prime Minister has to balance, right? So Lord Young has talked about bringing back Remainers or the sort of the, the sort of soft leave wing of the party. There are, uh, as you say, sort of, you know, increasing the proportion of women, regional representation, you know, bringing in MPs from across the country. Is it possible to balance all of those competing uh, interests? Not necessarily all competing, but those different interests. No, <laughs> that's why we're talking about quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think no, you, you can't please everybody all the time. I guess the two, going back to that rebellion point, the two people who are endlessly causing a bit of a fuss are the CRG, so the COVID recovery uh, group who think um, lockdown's been too tight and reopening's been too slow, so possibly you could try and bring some of those people back into government and and heal that wound once we get to a more stable position in the pandemic. Then I suppose the other one is the um, Red Bull Tories. You know, there is this difficult challenge that the PM has across this premiership, which is to deliver on what uh, those, tour the, those MPs are pushing for, which is largely increased spending um, with, uh, you know, the recovery and somehow broadly balancing the books. Um, but those are the other people who do often criticise the PM uh, and come the point of the next election is going to be a, a kind of, you know, that's judgment day as to whether they have lived up to their um, promises and expectations. So that's the other area they could try and pull some people into government. I, I agree with um, Ben. I think he could bring back Mark Harper, who was a very, very competent minister. He could bring back Damien Hines, who was a very good education secretary, the whole range of people that would actually strengthen the government as well as bring the party together.
Brilliant. Well, and, and that tallies again with another comment Alistair Burt has made, which is bringing back people is very important. It gives hope to those previously sacked, which is a useful measure of control. Well, on that, I think I've been sacked more often than anybody else. <laughs> and I think I've joined the government five times. And when you're, when you're getting, getting rid of people, it is much easier if at the same time the Prime Minister has brought back people from the back benches because that, the, that indicates that there is a possibility of life after death. And so my strong advice would be at the next reshuffle, do bring back some of the able people on the back benches who were in the government but have left because it just makes party management that much uh, easier if uh, those who are sacked know that actually they may be able to come back later. Yeah. Tim, can I can I just sort of slightly slightly take your role on and, and slightly challenge Lord Young? Well, more of a question, really. How much um, in terms of, you know, a, a processed way of doing things, does the prime minister's own personality impact the reshuffle? So as well, you can guide and advise, but it is very dependent, is it not, on the personality of the prime minister that you're dealing with? Well, in, in my case, it wasn't just the Prime Minister, it was the Prime Minister and George Osborne. And I think with Tony Blair, it wasn't Tony Blair, it was Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And in those two cases, you had very strong chancellors who had their own supporters and who were very anxious that in any reshuffle, their, um, the Brownites, as it were, or the Osborneites, should get a square deal. Mm. And so when I was Chief Whip, um, there was that additional aspect in, in answer to what Sam has just said. It wasn't just the personality of the Prime Minister, it was the personality of the, of, 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 of the Chancellor. Now, I don't think that's the same now. But I, I, the personality of the Prime Minister can make the process slightly easier, uh, the way he handles it. But I'm not sure that it makes um, that much difference to the actual choice, the personality. Uh, what, what he wants to do is to strengthen his government and bring in the right people and manage it in as humane a way as possible. Mm. Have you ever been involved in a reshuffle where a minister said, no, I'm not going to move? I'll, I'll leave government if you well, try and move me. Well, I think Jeremy Hunt uh, was very reluctant to move health at one point. I think um, other ministers have been offered uh, junior posts but decided to resign. I think Norman Lamont... Uh, was offered uh, a job but chose to resign. Mm. So that does happen. It does make the the um, dynamics of a, a reshuffle more difficult. You can't say, I won't, I won't go if the Prime Minister wants to get rid of you. I think you'd find that your pass back to your department, your car, your red boxes would all dry up. So at the end of the day, there's real politique there in the Prime Minister's hands. So you either accept what you've offered um, or if you're sacked, you go. Mm. It's kind of interesting because it also shows the political strength of the Prime Minister at that moment. So I was just listening to something about the Brown Years documentary and Peter Mandelson was describing when Gordon Brown wanted to move Alistair Darling, but he was in a very um, precarious political position and also the um, 0809 crash was raging and Mandelson was sent forward to be the envoy for Brown to sand out Darling. And Alistair Darling, according to Mandelson, basically said, I'm not going to do any other job. So he can keep me as Chancellor or I'm going to the back benches, but I'm not going to take any other job. And he eventually had to keep him because he was, didn't have the political strength to lose his Chancellor in the middle of a pandemic. So this is this is really interesting. It goes to the point earlier about, you know, this is one of the few times that the PM is, is, is sort of fully in charge of the government, but also high profile 
supportive ministers can still push back to to a certain extent. Um, I want to bring in some questions from the audience, but um, some of which are related to this. So, so one of them, uh, a little bit about sort of who who runs the reshuffle. Uh, Carl Gladwell has asked whether there should be uh, U.S. style hearings for uh, ministerial appointments. So, Ben, I wonder if you're, you know, given your time in Washington, would you like to take that one? Well, I would just make one point, which is Joe Biden's cabinet has only just met and we are in April and he took office in late January. So the problem with those hearings is that you have this bizarre situation that, you know, election was in November. You have two and a half months of transition. Joe Biden finally takes office in January and then there's another month or two or three before his cabinet actually gathers and can start making decisions. Um, so that, to me, does seem a very strange system. I understand the need for oversight, um, but we have way more oversight than um, in the in the US. I mean, I've been amazed coming back, watching the Prime Minister go to the Liaison Committee. Not once when I was covering Donald Trump did he appear before a congressional committee and answer questions from opposition congressmen. So I think our, our oversight is pretty good, and the regular appearances before committees is quite... Um, uh, is, is quite regular. So, I mean, they do kind of get hearings once they're in post when they appear before committees. And I think the downside is if you're in the middle of a crisis, then what do you do if, if your key person is being held up for weeks and weeks and weeks? And just to give one example, we want to push on with UK-US trade talks. Um, we have to wait at least two months, I think, before Joe Biden's um, uh, person heading up trade took that post. I know that was a frustration to DIT. So there are downsides to doing that type of approach. Definitely. Um, Salma, a question which I think for you, which is, is one of the most popular, is uh, should special advisors be assigned to departments rather than work for specific ministers? Would that help with the kind of stability of, of knowledge in government? God, no. Yeah. Um, so simply because you know a department is supposed to have its expertise um a special advisor is not there to sort of be have this expert pol policy knowledge about a particular area i mean they need to be able to understand it and filter it through a political lens for their minister um but their role is not to have some kind of policy expertise and also I suppose this is the downside, but also the benefit of having a special advisor is that you're able to go in and have a completely you know, fresh pair of eyes looking at the department. So all the inertia that exists there, and, and it does from time to time, um, a special advisor can actually shake it up a little bit on behalf of their minister. I mean, some special advisors have been known to maybe go a little bit too far in shaking things up. And I can understand the logic of why somebody would think that there's got to be an allocation. But the special advisor, really, the relationship between them and the minister is the critical thing um, and not, you know, the, the relationship with the department. Yeah. Katie? I think it's interesting if we go back to that uh, reshuffle, February reshuffle, that you had a uh, Ultimately, those around Boris Johnson really pushing for more say over who uh, the special advisor to who. And yes, most famously, you had the well, the then Chancellor uh, having to choose between his job and his aides. Um, but you also had after people kept their jobs, almost uh, you know, spats were taken into one room where they were given their own briefing. Um, I think that Robert Buckland was told that he had to lose his spad. Peter Cardwell, who's now written a book about being a spad, um, which he details in, in quite, uh, <laughs> quite specifically how exactly that conversation goes. Um, 
But I think it was part of a wider shift, um, particularly by the vote V team then in number 10 to almost try and separate the bond between Secretary of State and special advisors. And part of that was just because they uh, were worried about loyalties, but there was also at least um, a discussion of whether you would get people more qualified for certain departments by taking it out of the Secretary of State's hands. But I don't know if it was particularly uh, fruitful because ultimately, I think that what it did is if a Secretary of State does not feel as though they can choose their own team, I feel they feel quite uh, condescended. I, don't, I, I feel that is maybe humiliating is a bit of a strong word there, but I think it does take a bit of the pride away. And, and therefore, I think it is quite important um, in our current system that Secretary of States can ultimately have a say over who are the people who ultimately spend, you know, long hours with them in lots of different situations where you need trust. Yeah, yeah. Um I'm going to plug some IFG work now. I'm going to take chair's privilege. But um, last year, we published a, a paper looking at special advisors, which made the same point that, that Salma and Katie have both just made about, you know, the relationship between a secretary of state and their special advisor is that the, the success of that relationship in, uh, defines the success of the special advisor. You know, their most important characteristic is their ability to build trust and confidence uh, with, with their secretary of state. And then they can, as someone said, they can get up to speed on departmental issues separately. But on that number 10 point, um, we have a, another anonymous question um, saying, um, if this cabinet was designed to be weak versus a powerful central team, now the team has changed. Will the reshuffle be designed to bring in big beasts who can get on with the job? It would be another sign of the Prime Minister returning to major era uh, rather than Johnson. I mean, what do people think about that? Is that likely to happen? I think it depends if the big beasts are loyal to him. I mean, loyalty is clearly a very big factor in that cabinet. Uh, I mean, in particular, I remember during the watching a Far From America, watching the Lead Check campaign, there was that moment when three young Tory MPs all co-signed a piece backing Boris Johnson, and that was Rishi Sunak, Oliver Dalton, and Robert Jenrick. They all now have cabinet ministerial posts. Um, so I think that is a possibility, but a lot of those big beasts were critical of the Prime Minister. I mean, one that springs to mind is Jeremy Hunt, who very publicly was on the other side when it came down to that last two and who would be the Tory leader, decided to not take a post and go back onto the backbenchers. I mean, he's someone who you could possibly see coming back in and has been very vocal on um, failings over the pandemic or areas of concern over the pandemic. But you do need to pass that kind of loyalty test and not necessarily all of those big beasts on the Tory backbenchers are Boris people. Can I, to a certain extent though, Ben, I think the issue is that no prime minister ever really has to like all of their cabinet. So, you know, the, the loyalty thing is kind of, I think it is unique to this prime minister. Yeah, I, yeah. I also think that the centralizing nature of government is, uh, or administrations, number 10 particularly, is consistent over all prime ministers. I mean, in fact, the, the worst centralization that I recall was actually under Theresa May, um, where there was absolute stasis because, you know, between chief staff, would not um, give enough room to to allow the cabinet minister um, you know, access to the prime minister in decision making. So there is always this natural tendency to want to centralise and want to, to have a lot of power. Yeah. I think you have to be really confident in yourself and your team and your structure to allow a lot of big beasts, um, big beasts, I mean, define that as well, but allow them back into cabinet. Do you, do you think such a jab it would be open to coming back? Oh, I'm certain of that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know as what, though. 
I don't know. I, I, if I was betting, I would say that's that's probably worth a flutter as well. Him returning, and I think when you get when you get into that too, I mean, you have Sergio Javid, you have Jeremy Hunt. I think the reason why people much more uh, widely expect Sergio Javid to be the one who returns, perhaps both, but you know, ultimately, I think smart money's on Sergio for now is the fact that he has seemed to be more loyal from the back benches um, in the way he has handled himself. Now, he clearly had a grievance of Dominic Cummings, but a calculation that Sergio Javid made was that Boris Johnson would be here longer than Dominic Cummings, and that has paid off. So you can start to see a route back. And I think it's also one of those statement returns where it looks as though you are widening the party. Uh, yes, it was somebody who uh, campaigned for Remain, but did support Brexit. But it does suggest you're putting a, a, a period behind you. Um, but I think when it comes to big beasts, I mean, Boris Johnson likes to be the biggest beast. And I think that's always going to impact um, who you bring in and where. I mean, we often hear how much uh, Boris Johnson values his chancellor, but yet you can't help perhaps get the feeling that sometimes they do wonder whether she's doing that. Popularity ratings are just so high. Um, you, you know, and I think uh, you, you don't, I don't think the Prime Minister wanted it position where there's too many people uh, you know outperforming him and um, at the moment I think it's Liz Truss who is most consistently outperforming him in, in the polls at least. I think the Prime Minister can take uh, two tricks at the same time. I think we are over centralised. I think far too much is now hoovered up into number 10 and I don't think that's the best way to run the government and I think you could decentralise if you brought back some of the big beasts and put them in charge of some of the big departments and some of the names have been floated around already. Um, you could add Greg Clark, you had Sajid, um, Damien Hines, who was previously at education. So I think you could you could unite the, part, you, unite the party, strengthen the government, and begin to re return to a more formal, I think, effective form of government where secretaries of state in their departments got on with it. And uh, number 10 weren't constantly interfering and giving guidance and slowing things down. So I think he could do take two tricks at the same time. Brilliant. Can I throw in one other thing to, to watch for, which is um, just thinking off the top of my head. In terms of movements, I think there's a big question about whether you give Michael Gove a department rather than Cabinet Office. I mean, he has massive briefs in the Cabinet Office right now. A lot of pandemic stuff, including COVID certification right now, the union, um, civil service reform. But he is a Cabinet Minister who has a record of reform and has been put in some of these big departments like education. Uh, before so you could see a possibility of him um, returning to an actual department. And then the other one linked to that is just the union is a huge issue underpinning uh, or question mark underpinning the whole premiership, but it is going to ramp up a lot in the second half of this year, assuming that in next month there's either an SNP majority or a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. So all the questions that fall out from that, I mean, clearly the position is no, not as the right time. Now not as, now is not the right time to do, to grant a referendum. That's Westminster's position. But how that morphs, depending on the result. And also, do you consider giving even more emphasis to the union? So uh, Andrew Dunlop wrote a report for the PM that came out recently that suggested a cabinet minister for the union that is carved out like one of these great officers of state. I mean, I don't think that's about to be adopted, but that's another question mark. Yeah, yeah. Ben, can I just make a point on, on, to, to Michael Gove? Um, this is where I do think that personality and relationships in a reshuffle become really, really critical. Because obviously there's these two people who have been in each other's orbit for the better part of the last 30 years and obviously got some history. I don't think there's any point in going back through that. 
Um, and, you know, what does that actually mean in terms of Michael's ability, Michael's ability versus um, Boris's sort of feeling around him and what he wants to risk, um, the job that he wants to risk him taking? So I think that, that, that's an, always an added complication um, to whatever happens in reshuffles as well. Yeah, I suppose that is the point, going back to the Big Beast conversation, there's an example of someone where they, there is a bit of fractured personal history there, but he's giving Michael Drove huge policy areas and he's at the heart of government. And so he's been willing to forego previous um, issues to bring him to the heart of government. So you could see him doing it with other people. And also you're in the middle of a premiership with a massive majority. So there's not too much political risk. To Surely one of the points is what Boris wants to do is to be re-elected. And is he more likely to be re-elected if he brings the party together, brings back uh, competent people or not? And I think if you look at it uh, in, in, in that perspective, there's a lot to be said for him being magnanimous, healing old wounds and bringing back competent people who may in the past have disagreed with him. Uh, Katie, any, any thoughts on this? I was going to say on the Michael Gove point, um, that another element when you're trying to work out what's going to happen to Michael Gove is Sam was talking about his personal relationships, which is clearly a factor. I mean, does Boris Johnson trust Michael Gove? Lots of people say he, he never will fully trust him, uh, which clearly does depending how much power you give someone. But at the same time, we have all these staff personnel changes in number 10. Um, he did get Henry Newman, Simone Finn, Meg Palchanda, really senior people in 10 Downing Street now um, since almost this number 10 staff reshuffle, we can call it. Um, and they, those are all original go bites. So does that increase his standing um, when it comes to uh, getting it, whether he wants to stay or getting a, a, you know, a great office of state? Or actually, are these people now, you know, forest, uh, foresteads, and and that's passed. I think no one's completely sure yet when it comes to that power balance, what it exactly means to Michael Gove. On paper, this should be quite a good thing that all your staff have gone, but you could say that they've all left you um, if the sunnier climbs. And I think that's one thing that makes it quite hard to tell. I, I do think on Ben's point that. Given Michael Gove's leading the union policy um, in his many, uh, some people call tentacles, uh, cabinet office approach, there is an argument whether to make uh, this recommendation of an you know, expanded union office of state or even perhaps just Scotland secretary. I said this to someone the other day and they, and they slightly laughed and said, oh, you couldn't do that to Michael, suggesting it would be a demotion. But I think if Michael Gove really does think uh, Scotland's staying in the UK is the most important thing in this, in this government, which we often hear, surely that would be something uh, he would consider if uh, it is looking the way it is with an SMP and calls to get a fairly comfortable majority. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we um, we have about 10 minutes left. And we, so we've talked about the big themes, you know, party uni, unity, the union, uh, the trust between Johnson and Gove. I would like to uh, gossip a little bit for the last 10 minutes and I would like to ask the panel um, stories of reshuffles that have gone wrong or things that, what meant to happen, where, where things have gone slightly awry. Um, are there any good uh, sort of anecdotes that people have got from, from their time in and around Westminster? Well, Tim, can I um, please share with a wider audience an experience? In 1979, Margaret Thatcher won the general election and I <clears throat> was a, a fairly newly elected uh, Member of Parliament. The day after the election, at number 10 rang my home, summoning me to um, number 10 for when the cabinet was being, being appointed and I discovered five minutes later when they rang again they weren't after Sir George Young as I then was they were after the Honourable George Younger 
who turned out to be a much better Secretary of State for Scotland than I could ever have been. So that was um, one thing when the, the fabulous number 10 switchboard got things ever so slightly wrong. I, I remember, I think, from back in the days when you were when you were allowed to you know, drink socially, um, there was a game, some unnamed, it was not me, um, I think, uh, figures play where they would call people on a withheld number on the day of a reshuffle. So you would have MPs sat outside the bar, remember hearing this story, and um, called a few and you, uh, they pretended to ultimately be the number 10 switchboard. I think this is a joke that has been played a, a several times in the course of history and you just see how far you can get and ultimately sometimes it can be uh, quite far <laughs> people disappear from the stranger's bar terrace and go to the office waiting for a call that um is never actually going to come so a, cr a cruel game and not one i've taken part in <laughs> ukraine yeah yeah I, I remember hearing, and Ed Vasey used to tell this story, that he was, in the coalition years, he was called up to uh, go and become a junior minister at the business department. So off he sort of trundled to, to the department only to find that they were expecting Ed Davey and it was him that was actually supposed to have been given the promotion and not Ed Vasey, um, which I always find uh, quite amusing because it's always about the name thing. Yeah. And I, actually, um, I, I do recall there was always a... Do you remember the Jim, Jim O'Neill who used to who who sort of did the brick countries? Mm -hmm. um, there was an advisor in the Treasury that was also called Jim O'Neill who was made Northern Powerhouse Minister. He the, the advisor called Jim O'Neill was called as opposed to the the guy who was going to become the minister, which I thought was was quite funny. But also, how do they mix these numbers up? I think somebody needs to have a word at Downing Street, Street switchboard about accuracy. <laughs> Well, one of, the, one of the fun ones of being a journalist is industry trying to bust the reshuffles. So in the days before, when it's pretty clear one is on, you're desperately trying to work out uh, who's going to get the sack and who isn't. And one of the tricks of the trade, I hope we're not giving the game away, but uh, we sent a junior, uh, I won't name who it was, member of our team to physically watch the door of the Prime Minister's office in the Commons to see who went in and went out. Um, and this must have been pre-2015. Uh, and quite late on the night before the reshuffle, we saw that Michael Gove, who's education secretary at the time, go in, have a long conversation with David Cameron and come out. Um, and sadly, as we scrambled to stand up the story that Michael Gove might be about to be sacked, we failed to do so and thought, well, he's such a big beast. That's probably not going to happen. And the next day he was indeed sacked. And that was the main story. So uh it's one of the many scoops that we've uh, missed in our time but um simple things like that just literally placing someone near the door of the pm's office can actually get you those stories and i guess this comes back to the point doesn't it that you know it's impossible to predict these things so it's it's a bit of a mug's game um nobody yeah, but Tim, what, what's more interesting is is not just kind of like what's happened before but the westminster village is always sort of brimming with gossip and uh i think it's always when you pick things up and you sort of pass them on as if they're, if they're true especially about reshuffles you see i hear that um george young might be returning to uh front bench politics from the lords and i think uh, ben and katie should definitely report on that <laughs> well if you find the second person then we've double sourced it <laughs> yeah. I, I think one, one point that we haven't really made during this session is the importance of trying to build a team in a department. Mm -hmm. um, you, you appoint all these people, but actually the departments only get to work if they get on with each other. 
And I think that's one of the factors that uh, ought to be taken into account in the next reshuffle. Make sure you've got a team who can work together in any particular individual department, um, rather than you know, put in people who may not get on with each other at all. Yeah. And that point about longevity is true, not to go back to it, but I think Nick Gibb has been schools minister for probably five years, if I'm guessing. And it's amazing often, actually, when you call ministers uh, about something you've heard in one of their policy brief areas and they generally don't know about it. And you kind of realise, oh, you've only been in the job a couple of months and probably the civil service actually know what's yeah. happening. So I think there is something to be said, certainly in that rung below cabinet minister, that longevity does have a big impact on good government policy. Definitely. Definitely. OK, we've got a couple of minutes left. So um, a final question from me is if you were advising the prime minister now as, as chief whip or as special advisor to number 10, what would your advice to him be on, on an upcoming reshuffle? Um, who wants to go first? I have a simple one. Don't, don't, call, don't, don't declare victory over the pandemic too early because that's clearly the drive is to say, OK, we've done it. We're now looking forward to a bigger government changes and it's going to come back and bite you, I think. So I would be cautious on that point, which then spins off into narrative and timing of when you do a reshuffle. Thank you. I think my advice would be um, be precise. Um, you know, change change the roles that you really want to focus on and really understand what it is that you want those roles to achieve. So if, if it is about global Britain, and you know about gaining um, you know amazing trade deals and and um, this new you know new sort of chapter we're venturing into. Then really consider what you want from your foreign office and what you want from your trade department. Um, and it's that precision that I think is important in a reshuffle. I mean, I think I would say uh, remember what you promise people. But that is the least in the last reshuffle. As far as I can tell, there are a lot of promises still to be kept. I'm not sure if the Prime Minister can keep them all, but I think at least doing a few might uh, ease us conflict down the line. Um, I would say unite the party and reward talent. So make sure you get the right name <laughs> when you're doing the calls. The right name and the right phone number. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm going to call an end there. So thank you very much to this fantastic panel uh, for this discussion. I really enjoyed it. I hope the four of you have as well. Uh, thank you to everyone for watching and for asking your questions. Apologies that we weren't able to get to all of them. Um, if, if and when there is a reshuffle, we obviously don't know either, but if and when there is one, the IFG will be doing lots of analysis, looking at uh, who's appointed, what it means for the shape of the government, what issues will be in the new minister's intros. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, and keep an eye out for future IFG live events. Thank you all very much for watching. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.